Okay, guys, I'm going to get started. Um, I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to preach this morning what I had planned. Um, the hour is late, and I don't want to stop in the middle. I just simply don't. Um, so I'm going to go a little bit different direction with the time that's been allotted. And uh, we'll just see what the Lord does with it. We'll see if it fits or doesn't fit what we've been talking about these past weeks and what we'll go on to talk about next week. Sometimes the Lord does that and it's okay because it's not about me. It's about us coming together and being edified. So turn to Proverbs 11. Turn to Proverbs 11. We've been looking at a few verses here that I've tied together with my introduction to Revelation chapter 21, our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is not just to die and our spirit be with Jesus. It's not the, just the rapture of the church. It's not the second coming or the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ. Our ultimate hope, our ultimate expectation, all of these things point to that, is a new heaven and a new earth that God will create wherein dwells righteousness. And sometimes to fully appreciate, to strengthen our faith in the future, we have to look to the past. We have to look to the past and see these things affirmed and lived out by others to strengthen our faith to do the same, to keep our eyes on the prize and not to despair. So that's what I've been doing around this season of Advent. We've talked about some little nuances of the Christmas story that are often underappreciated. And we've done it in the context of Proverbs 11. Several, uh, three weeks ago, I believe, we looked at Proverbs 11:7. When a wicked man dies, his expectation shall perish, and the hope of unjust men shall perish. The expectation of the wicked dies with them. All of those great expectations of a new utopia, of a new Cambodia, perished with the Khmer Rouge when they fell to the Vietnamese in 1979. All of the expectations of the left wing in our government, of Joe Biden and his cadre of terrorists, of the news media, of the Republicans in the Senate and in the Congress, who desire this great reset, that will all perish with them. But it's not so with the righteous. Our expectation doesn't die with us. That's why Abraham could look to a city way off in the future whose builder and maker was God, never see it in his lifetime, live in tents his entire life, and still live and, and act as if he believed in that distant hope. And it didn't die with him. When Jesus left heaven to come to earth, as a newborn baby, there was one who saw that day and rejoiced. <clears throat> Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Abraham saw the day Jesus left heaven because he was alive in the presence of God, in, 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 that, in the, uh, paradise. He saw that day and rejoiced. And then the scribes and the Pharisees mocked Jesus and said, you're not even 40 years old. What do you mean Abraham saw your day? And Jesus declared very plainly what the Muslim claims he never claimed, and he did, before Abraham was, I am. 
Then they picked up stones to kill him because he made himself equal with God. But Abraham saw it afar off. Our expectation doesn't die. And so if we see it during this earthly life, or we see it in the coming days, or if we don't, if the liberals take over this country and persecute Christians, it still doesn't change. We can look ahead as Abraham did. We talked about how there were those doing that in the days of the birth of Christ. In Jerusalem, Simeon, Anna, the prophetess, and the ones to whom she preached were looking for redemption in Jerusalem, whether it came in their day or not. All Simeon wanted to do was see the Lord's Christ and then he was content to die, even if his earthly life didn't allow him to experience anything else or the earthly ministry of Messiah. (coughs) Our expectation doesn't die with us. That ought to affect our behavior. It really did. Then we jumped down to Proverbs 11.10 last week. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoiceth. And when the wicked perish, there is shouting. It's a fact of human nature. When it goes well with the righteous, society is happy. Just like when our troops came home from World War II. They were shouting and rejoicing. When the wicked perish, there's cause to rejoice. That's a fact of life. We ought to desire that. That it go well with the righteous and that the wicked perish. That is ultimately going to happen. And that ought to affect our behavior today. In order for these things to happen now, it's necessary that righteous men interpose between the oppressor and those whom he is oppressing. It requires that righteous men disobey and defy tyranny. That too is an element of the Christmas story that's overlooked. The righteous men, I mean, the wise men were ordered by Herod to return and give him the details of this birth of Christ in Bethlehem. God came to the wise men in a dream and he told them not to obey Herod, not to go back and give him that information. And so they went home another way. The wise men defied a tyrant. They refused to do what he asked them to do. And therefore... Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus were delivered. Righteous men must stand in the gap, as did the wise men, in order for these things in Proverbs 11.10 to happen. I want to back up today to verse 8 in Proverbs 11. This is all a part, this is all to fuel you, to encourage you, to affirm you as we look toward a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The righteous is delivered out of trouble and the wicked cometh in his stead. God delivers the righteous from trouble and the trouble, the wicked end up getting what they purposed for the righteous. In other words, the wicked end up falling into the trap They have laid for others. This is a biblical principle. This is undeniably taught throughout the scriptures that God delivers the righteous and that the wicked perish and fall into the traps they have laid for others. This is ultimately fulfilled in a new heaven and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. 
where the wicked cannot come. They are an eternal burning, an eternal testimony, off in the distance, Isaiah 66. But they cannot come. That is our ultimate hope. But it is even fulfilled now. And it's been done time and time again in the past. And it can be done now for us. And we should look for it. God knows how to deliver the righteous out of trouble. And he does. It may not be as you think it should be. But he does. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Because Peter basically restates exactly what the writer of Proverbs says. Exactly what Solomon says. Exactly what's fulfilled in Revelation 21. It's the same Peter that said, We look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. 2 Peter 2. Now this is in the context of Lot's rapture out of Sodom. Yeah, Lot and his wife and his daughters were raptured out of Sodom. They were seized and taken out. That's a rapture in the Old Testament. In fact, the angel said, we can't do nothing until you get out of here. And grabbed them and literally drug them out and said, go. Lot was delivered out of Sodom. And it's in this context that Peter speaks, verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter is talking about the fate that awaits false teachers. They will come in the stead of the wickedness they have purposed on the righteous. And the righteous will be delivered. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes... God condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that should after live ungodly. What God did in Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't done in a vacuum, and it wasn't done solely to punish those wicked people. It was done to give us an example of all generations of how God deals with sin, particularly the sin of homosexuality and sodomy and sexual perversion. This is how God deals with it. And that ought to warn us in our society. But it doesn't. Instead, we embrace it. We change God's word. And we go along to get along. But Sodom and Gomorrah was an example that we should heed. But, though God destroyed those wicked cities to where you can't even find their ruins today, verse 7, He delivered just Lot. Lot wasn't just because he was necessarily virtuous in the way he conducted himself every day. In fact, he showed himself to lack faith. He showed himself to be attracted by the things of the world. He chose to go live in Sodom. He chose the choice land of the plains. And Abraham was able to let him have it and take what, from man's perspective, was a lesser path. Lot was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. It made him upset, but it also tempted him and brought him to the brink of compromise. It wasn't an easy existence. Lot Lot was captured when these Canaanite kings came and attacked Sodom, and Abraham had to go rescue him. So Lot wasn't just because of his behavior. Like Abraham, he was just in the eyes of God because he believed God. 
And it was proof that he obeyed when the angels came and told him to leave. He did. But just Lot was vexed and God delivered him. For that righteous man dwelling among them, a righteous man that made his share of mistakes, and I'm not justifying them, in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. It, the, the wickedness of that city made him miserable. It vexed him. He was not content. Is that our attitude in America today? It should be if we're righteous. What we see ought to vex us. It ought to vex us when we see liars on the Supreme Court who told us who told us when they were appointed these last few years that they stood by the Constitution, who told us that and then raped the Constitution on Friday night. I don't know if Brett Kavanaugh ever raped somebody in college or not. He said he didn't. There were awful things said about him. I don't know if they were true or not. Oh, I bet you there's more to the story and there's no innocence. I don't care if he raped somebody in college because he raped the Constitution by the way he voted on Friday night in that case whereby Texas called into question the cheating elections that went on in these other states. Brett Kavanaugh is guilty of rape. He raped the Constitution. And so did that woman. I don't care if she adopted children from Haiti. I don't care. Her allegiance is to the Pope, and she proved it on Friday night because the Pope wants Joe Biden in office. The Pope wants the United States to fall. They voted with their God on Friday night. Shame on them. That ought to vex us. Don't make excuses for those wicked judges. It ought to vex us. Lot was vexed, but God delivered him. The Lord knoweth. Here's the principle. We've been given the fact of history. Now here's the principle that applies to us and ought to strengthen us. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Exactly the same principle Solomon states in Proverbs 11, 8. And to reserve the unjust unto the judgment, the day of judgment to be punished. God knows how to deliver the righteous. He knows how to do it today. Even if the usurper is inaugurated on January 20th. He knows how to deliver. And he knew how to deliver in the days of the birth of Jesus. He knew how to deliver then. He knows how to deliver now. He knew how to deliver Lot in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And one day he will deliver all the righteous. For we look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Turn to Psalm 116.15. Because sometimes deliverance comes in a form that you think not. We've got to stop thinking about death as something bad for us. This COVID-19 thing amazes me. I'm not surprised by the actions and the attitudes of the wicked. But why are so many Christians afraid to go be with the Lord? To where they hide in their homes, they rob themselves of fellowship, they put a diaper on their face every day, all day. I've been trying to pay attention. I'd like to see these teenagers out here. Wearing, wearing a mask all day. I wonder, I, I'm sure there's acne beards under the mask. I mean, I hate that. I mean, I had, it was bad enough for me to deal with acne you know, in its regular occurrence as a teenager. I can't imagine these teenagers today. But anyway, why are we so afraid 
to be with the Lord to where we're paralyzed. Shouldn't be this way. Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. My friends, when you die, if you die as a Christian because of persecution or like those Cambodian believers who were slaughtered, that is precious in the sight of the Lord. That is deliverance. There was a man who was the president of the, inter, the uh, Institution of Creation Research that died this a few days ago. It wasn't Henry Morris. Henry Morris has been dead. It was Henry Morris III. And he's kind of been running that. I get their daily devotions. It's solid stuff. But Henry Morris III died. I don't know how old he was. He may have been in his 70s. But um, they didn't say much about it. It just was an announcement. We regret to inform you all of the passing of this man of God. And they didn't say much. There wasn't a big deal. It was just he went to be with the Lord. I did a little digging, and all I could find was it was due to complications of COVID-19. And uh, I went into the hospital or went to the doctor, ended up in the hospital, put on a ventilator, and then was dead. And you think, well, man, that's terrible. We need to hide in our homes. Well, that's not the way the ministry presented it. They presented it as a glorious thing, a precious thing. They didn't go into all this stuff about COVID. If you die as a believer today of COVID, you've been delivered by the Lord from this present evil world. You've been delivered by these devils in the American government. So even in death, God delivers the righteous. There are many believers who have died. It may appear that the coming of the Lord for His church is near, and it may be, but we may perish. There may be a revolution or a war in this country that takes our lives, but that is deliverance for the righteous. Precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of His saints. The Apostle Paul understood this. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is our theme verse as a ministry. I actually have an original page from a 1611 first edition of the King James Bible that has these verses on it. I'm sure it's very valuable. I inherited from my grandfather. It's a precious token I've got in my office. Paul, at the end of his life, knows his days are short. Previously, he had expected for Christ to come for his church in his lifetime. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he talked about the dead in Christ who will rise up at the rapture and then said, but we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air. He thought he would be part of that. In 1 Corinthians, he said, we shall all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. Paul thought he'd be alive when the Lord came for his church. But here, it's inevitable that he won't be. Is he, does he despair? Is he brokenhearted? No. His faith is strong. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, he tells Timothy, watch in all things. I'm, my time is over. You need to watch in all things, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. That's where our ministry name comes from. God gave me to that years ago. And then confirmed it by that King James Bible page that I had no idea was going to be given to me at the time I was wrestling with these things. Now look what Paul says, for I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. He knows his days are up. He's going to be executed by Nero. 
Nero went crazy in these latter years. He wasn't so in the early part of Paul's house arrest in Jerusalem. I mean, in Rome. Paul's death sentence is handed down. And he speaks of his death not as his demise, but of as his departure. His offering. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, at the day of his departure. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his parousia, his appearing, the ones that are alive and remain, of which Paul would not be a part. But Paul did not despair because he saw and understood that his expectation didn't die with him and that even in his death there was deliverance. The Lord delivers the righteous. Paul understood that. We, th- we see these things played out in the birth of Christ's narrative. There's a character that often gets overlooked in this story. Oh, he's there, but he is overlooked. Who do you think that is? It's Joseph. Joseph was a hero in this story. But not... It's not remembered. It's rarely talked about. If Joseph hadn't been obedient, Mary would not have been able to be where she needed to be and her and the baby Christ child would have been in grave danger. When we look at the birth narrative of Christ, we see played out here the very same principle that Proverbs 11, 8 declares that's demonstrated in the life of Lot that's demonstrated even in the death of the believer in Matthew's account we get a close a closer look at Joseph and there's a very interesting verb that you will find six times in this account in Greek It's not a wise thing to pronounce Greek from the pulpit. My old professor, he was an old solid dispensationalist at at, at Liberty, back when Liberty had good, solid Bible professors. He went to be with the Lord years ago, but he said, don't ever pronounce Greek from the pulpit. I'm going to disappoint Dr. Fink today, and I'm going to do that, even though you'll never remember it. There's a verb, paralambano. It means to take. We'll find it at least six times in Matthew's account of the birth of Christ. And it relates every time to Joseph. It's what Joseph did. The King James translators translate this take in English, and that is correct. But it's quite different from another common Greek verb that you also find in the Scriptures. The verb iro. It's also correctly translated take. But Iro is used in a negative sense. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and He prayed to the Father, Lord, take from me this cup if it be Your will. But if not, I will drink it. Jesus prayed that God would take, Iro, take away the cup of His suffering. God didn't and Jesus was obedient. That's the sense of Iro. It's a negative sense. It's also used to describe Noah's flood when Jesus is comparing the days of the Son of Man 
which are days of peace and security, pseudo-security, not the days of the tribulation. He's not talking about the second coming there. He's comparing it to the days of Noah when people were eating and drinking and giving in marriage and marrying and partying. And then suddenly the flood came and took them all away. Took the wicked away. But in the Christmas story, there's a different take verb associated with Joseph. It's not Iro, what Jesus prayed for his father to take from him, or what the waters did to the wicked. It's paralambano. It's got a very different connotation. And I can appreciate this as one who speaks multiple languages. There's similar things in Nepali and Hebrew and, and um, Spanish. In Spanish, there are three primary verbs that translate take. And they all mean take, but take in a different sense. When we speak English and use the word take, we understand what we're talking about because of the context. I can take this book with me. I can take this notebook from McKenna. I can take a cup out of that cabinet. I can take you home or I can take a wife. Now, is there any doubt in your mind what I mean when I use the word take in those phrases? No, you understand. You understand the context. In Spanish, there's different words. There's three primary words for take. And it's pretty important that you make sure you're using the correct one when you speak or the hearer might get the wrong idea. And that wrong idea might just get you in trouble. I've gotten in trouble in Nepali and uh, Spanish before. There's a dessert the Indians like to eat. It's a sweet ball. It's like this donut type thing dipped in sugar. It's so saturated. It's like a Krispy Kreme or a Dunkin' Donuts donut hole times a hundred in terms of... And the, and the sweet stuff just oozes out. The Indians call it Ras Gulab. That's what it is. It's Ras Gulab. The Nepalis call it Ras Badi. It's the same exact thing, but they don't say Gulab. Gulab is a Hindi word that's also used in Nepali, but in Nepali it has a very different connotation. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> don't ask a Nepali baker for not Ras Gulab. That would be very... That would be perfectly fine in India, but don't do it in Nepal, especially if the one that's serving you is a woman. Get in trouble. Been there, done that. But I can appreciate this. But let's consider the Christmas narrative for a moment. In Matthew 1, let's just turn there, Matthew chapter 1. Again, this is not what I intended to do today, so let's see what God does. <coughs> Verse 20, Joseph was a just man, just like Lot, not special, not famous, relatively unknown, a carpenter, but he was of the seed and house of David. A king hadn't sat on a throne in a long time in Israel, so this wasn't necessarily a glorious thing that most people cared about in this day. Joseph was a spouse to Mary, just like the church is a spouse to Christ now, ahead of the marriage supper. They were engaged. Before they came together, she was found a child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, who was a just man, had a problem. He had a wife who was pregnant, and it definitely wasn't by him. 
And the story of how that came to be wasn't exactly going to be believed. It was going to be hard to believe. But Joseph was a just man. He didn't want to make a public example of Mary. He loved her. He decided, you know what, I'm just going to put her away privately. And for her sake, I'm going to do it in a way that she can not be harmed. He was a just man. He didn't want revenge or retaliation. He wanted to do so with honor. And as he was thinking about this, my, 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 spa, I mean, my fiance is pregnant. It's not by me. What am I supposed to do? While he thought on these things, Joseph is someone that did something that many of us don't do when faced with a problem. He took time to think about it. What he was pondering was a response, not a reaction. I get in trouble for reacting, for not thinking. I get, on, I get in trouble on Facebook for that sometimes. But Joseph thought on those things. There's a lesson there. And as he did, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream. If we want God to speak to us, put down your stupid iPhone, turn off Netflix, and get quiet for a moment and think about what you're dealing with. That's when God speaks to people and brings Scripture to mind. While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream. Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take Paralambano, Mary, for thy wife, because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, Isaiah 714. Then verse 24. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took Paralambano unto him his wife. The angel appears to Joseph and tells him to take Mary to be his wife. Despite the appearance it gave. Despite the fact that what was in her was not of him. Then Joseph did... What many of us who profess Christ failed to do, he got up from his sleep and he immediately obeyed God's word. He didn't hesitate. He did it immediately. Kind of like we did when the lockdown orders came. We immediately decided we're going to do what God commands and assemble. A lot of other Christians hesitated. I'm not condemning them because I hesitate in a lot of things. I should act immediately. He obeyed God's word and then he took unto him his wife. In other words, he took, he received unto him his wife. Well, that's, the angel's not finished with Joseph. In Matthew chapter 2, he appears to Joseph again and tells him to take Paralambano, Mary, and the baby Jesus down to Egypt to escape the tyranny of King Herod. Verse 13. The wise men came. They interposed and refused to carry out Joseph's, I mean, the King Herod's orders. They went home by their country another way. And when they were departed, verse 13, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take Paralambano again, the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. 
Here the angel appears again. And he tells Joseph to do the same thing. Take. Take the baby, take Mary, and flee to Egypt and escape. Immediately he obeyed. Immediately. And he did it by night. You see, Joseph didn't wake up in the morning and get their things together and start packing and get out the next day. He got up that night. It says they went by night. He got up immediately and obeyed. They grabbed their stuff and they left. Now, God had already provided the provision they would need for such a trip. God already provided gold, frankincense, and myrrh. God knew what he was doing. He was providing. Already provided. We know that this event happened at least weeks, at the very least, at least weeks after the birth of Christ. Had to, because on the seventh day, Jesus was taken to be circumcised in the temple. And then Mary came on the 30th day to be purified. And when they came, they didn't offer up a lamb or a goat. They offered up turtle doves, which was the offering of the poor. If the poor could not afford these other types of sacrifice, turtle doves, a pair of turtle doves would do. Now, if Mary and Joseph had gold, frankincense, and myrrh, then they wouldn't have offered up the poor man's offering. They would have offered up the regular offering. So this happened later. The, The wise men may have come six months after Jesus was born. We don't know the exact timeline. We do know that Herod died just before Passover 4 B.C., But Joseph got up immediately and did what God told him to do. He took the ones he loved for the purpose of escape or deliverance. He paralambano received Mary to himself. He paralambano took the baby and Mary for the purpose of escape and deliverance. God having already provided the financial means. It's not over. Go to the end of chapter 2. Here here we're in the middle. Now let's go to the end. The angel comes to Joseph a third time in a dream. Verse 20 or verse 19. But when Herod was dead, this would have been just before Passover 4 BC. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother. Take, Paralambano. And go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and he took Paralambano, the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Joseph is told that Herod is dead, and now he is to take the same verb used when he was to take Mary to be his wife, when he was to take his family to Egypt. Now he's told to take his family home. Of course, Joseph had already shown this was his custom. He immediately obeyed the Lord and he took his wife and the baby Jesus home to Nazareth. Joseph was a hero often overlooked because he obeyed the Lord immediately and he took Mary as would a husband as a savior, he took them to Egypt. And as a, as a chauffeur, he took them home. Not just to be with him, but to be rescued by him 
and to go home alongside him. That's what Joseph did. And friends, this is a glorious picture of our Messiah's relationship with his church, his bride. It's a picture. And it's the use of this verb that proves it. This is what proves it is a picture of our relationship with the Lord, our bridegroom, and it ought to strengthen us in days of tyranny. We forget that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, these were not days of peace and rest. The Romans were governing Israel. Israel was under foreign influence, foreign dominion, just like we are today. The Chinese are governing us. Joe Biden is a Chinese operative. It's through the left that China has endeavored to take over our country. We're living under a coup. We're living under foreign domination. Now, you can choose to, 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 you can refuse to believe that, but it is what it is. Open your eyes. In the days of Jesus, Israel was not a place of peace. It was a place of tyranny. The governors and the kings that Rome had set up to keep the peace Endeavored to keep the peace through tyranny. Go study the life of Herod. He's a wicked, evil man. Wicked. Oh, he adorned and remodeled the temple and built, built a nice uh, shrine around the grave of Abraham to appease the Jews. But he was evil and wicked. And you better not cross his path. And you better do what he says. Even when he respects you, he'll turn on you like a dime. The Roman governors were corrupt. The Jews in the Galilee were always stirring up trouble. And the Roman garrisons had to come in to put it down. These were days of tyranny. It was not a safe journey to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, especially with a pregnant wife. It wasn't safe. It wasn't safe to go to Egypt in those days. And yet, all of this happened. And yet, the people were obedient. They didn't fear. Joseph didn't hide in his home. Mary didn't hide in her home. They did what they had to do. They were days of tyranny. Just like today. And yet God delivered His people. And it's a glorious picture. What happened here is a picture of what Christ is going to do for His church. And like I said, it's the verb that proves it. Matthew 24. The Father one day will turn to His Son and give the command. Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and the hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. That's not the day Christ comes on a white horse. His second coming can't be. Because Daniel the prophet tells us when that's going to happen at the end of the 70th week. At the end of a seven year tribulation. After all of these signs have been fulfilled. After Israel recognizes their great mistake, Hosea 5, He will come to rescue them. But what Jesus is talking about here is a coming that no man knows. Only the Father. One day the Father will give the command. Only He knows the day and the hour. And like Joseph, the Messiah will act immediately. He will come and He will take His bride to Himself to be with Him. Turn to John 14, verse 3. 
I'll start at verse 1. This is a familiar passage. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Just as a bridegroom did for his prospective bride in the Jewish custom of a wedding. Jesus was talking to his Jewish disciples. He is using the wedding imagery that is not being forced upon the text. And when you understand the wedding imagery and what happens in a Jewish wedding, it becomes clear what kind of coming he's talking about. And it's not the second advent. And if I go to prepare a place for you, verse 3, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Now in English, the word take is not there. It's the word receive. But guess what it is in Greek? Paralambano. The exact same word that was used when the angel told Joseph to take Mary as his wife. The connotation of receiving. There's coming a day when Jesus will come and do for us exactly what Joseph did. Even though we are weak and compromised, even though we are poor and wretched and blind and naked like the church at Laodicea, Mary had the appearance of an adulteress, and yet her bridegroom took her in obedience to the Lord to be his wife. And that's what our bridegroom's going to do for us. One day, at an hour we think not, he's going to come and receive us to himself. John 14, 3, he's going to come and receive us to himself. Now, he will take his church, whether, she, whether, he, whether the believer is standing in a field, grinding at the mill, or sleeping in a bed. He's coming to deliver them from the coming judgment. Not just to receive them to him as a, hus- as a wife, but to deliver them from coming judgment. To be rescued by him. Just as Joseph took the young child and Mary and rescued them from Herod. If you go to Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, it's very important that you consider who Jesus is talking to. It's not the people. It's the disciples who came to him privately. In fact, we'll talk next week about how there's a key verse that gets overlooked when you compare Luke 21 and Matthew 24. Everybody talks about it's the Olivet Discourse. But Jesus says some different things. And you've got to understand that in Luke, he's talking to the people during the daytime in the temple. And in Matthew 24, he's talking to his disciples privately. And that's why what Jesus tells his disciples privately about one in the field, one's taken, the other left, he doesn't say to the people in Jerusalem. But he does tell his disciples at another time in Luke 17. See, Jesus didn't just say things one time, guys. He had an earthly ministry of three and a half years. He hammered these things. So Jesus would have repeated himself what any good teacher would do. He would have commentated on his own teachings multiple times. But when you look at the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, and you look at Jesus also talking to his disciples about his coming that no man knows but the Father, in Luke 17, you see this same verb, paralambano, used five times. Turn to Matthew 24. We'll just go there. Jesus says the same things in Luke 17 at another time. 
He says, uh, But of that day and hour, verse 36, knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father. What day and what hour? The coming of the Son of Man. Is it the second coming? Prophesied in the Old Testament, the end of Daniel's 70th week. Is it the second coming that cannot happen until Israel repents of their sin of rejection? Hosea. Or is this his coming, secret coming for his church? I'll let the scripture answer that. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered in the ark. They weren't suffering under tyranny. They were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, partying, peace and safety. And then suddenly the flood waters came. These aren't days, the days of Noah... The pseudo-security and the partying and the marrying are not going to be the time of the tribulation. Isaiah tells us what the tribulation will look like and it tells us that people will not be doing these things because there's so, many, so few left after the judgments. So we'll talk about that more next week. But the days of Noah, people were pseudo-secure. And they knew not, verse 39, until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. The Son of Man is going to be like the flood. It says the flood came and took the wicked away. Not Paralambano, Iro. It took them away to judgment. And then Jesus says, this is how the coming of the Son of Man be. There shall be two in the field. One taken. Some people say, well, yeah, the second coming, the one in the field is taken away to judgment, just like the wicked were taken away in Noah's flood. Oh, no, 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 my friend. It may be the same verb in English, but it is not in the original language. Two shall be, one shall be taken, paralambano, the other left behind. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, just like Enoch was. Paralambano. Just like Joseph took Mary and Joseph, I mean Mary and the uh, young child to Egypt to escape. The other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. We don't know the hour. It can happen at any time. But know this that if the goodman of the house had known in which watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be you also ready. For at such an hour as you think not the Son of Man come. Joseph had no idea what was coming from Herod. He was awoken after the the wise men departed and and the angel said, Get up, take them. Take them out of here. And he obeyed. And he took them. He rescued them. In the same way, the Son of Man will take us and rescue us out. In the other account in Luke 17, the disciples asked, Where, Lord? They're not asking where are people going to be taken. They're asking where they're going to be left. And the answer Jesus gives them is an allusion to Isaiah 18 where we're told what happens when God gets a great present that is taken out of the earth and then those left behind are left to the cark. They're, they're left to the birds. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. Every New Testament doctrine is... Enfolded in the old. And if we believe 
and truly put our faith and hope in a pre-tribulational rapture, which I do, then we ought to be able to find the seeds in the Old Testament, and they're there. The reason we don't see them is because we don't know the Scriptures, and we don't understand that Jesus was citing and alluding to the law, the prophets, and the Psalms almost every single time He preached. But here, in Matthew 24 and Luke 17, we see that verb again. Christ is going to take us as a husband would a wife, John 14. He's going to take us as, as Joseph did for Mary and the young child to rescue us from coming judgment. And he's also going to take his people to their eternal home. Just like Joseph took Mary and the Christ child back home to Nazareth. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 12 where the same verb, paralambano, shows up again. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, 28. Wherefore we receiving a kingdom. What is the kingdom? It's our home. What's the verb receiving there? Paralambano. And who is the we? The church. We, wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. This is our eternal home. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably, acceptably with reverence and godly fear. God, Jesus is going to take us home. Just like Joseph did Mary and the baby Jesus. Therefore, we shouldn't be hiding in our homes. We should be carrying out our present duties faithfully with grace, with reverence and fear. Reverence and fear, two things that the modern church lacks. A reverence for God and a fear of God. And that's why we are where we are today. Joseph's actions in taking Mary to be his wife taking the baby and Mary to Egypt and taking them home are a glorious picture of what the Messiah is going to do for us. He's going to take us to Himself, John 14. He's going to take us out of this earth ahead of God's wrath. And He's going to take us to our eternal home that cannot be moved. Therefore, we need to prepare for that day by faithful performance of our present duties. Every time the angel came to Joseph... It was in a dream at the end of a day where he had faithfully gone about his normal business. Let it be the same for us. Holy living and aggressive ministry when the trumpet sounds. That's the best way we prepare. Not hiding out in our homes. We also need to rest easy. Because Jesus is going to do for His bride as Joseph did for Mary in the Christmas story, we need to rest easy in these days of tyranny. Psalm 37, meditate upon it. Fret not because of evildoers. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. He will give you the desires of your heart. Forsake wrath, cease from anger, rest in the Lord. We need to rest like Joseph did long ago. He didn't freak out. He just got up and did what God said. He was a hero. An unsung hero. Why? Because it is an eternal principle. It proved true for Joseph. And it will prove true for us. The righteous is delivered out of trouble. 
and the wicked cometh in his stead. Ultimately fulfilled in a new heaven and a new earth. Right now, is he, who knows what the Jews are celebrating right now? Hanukkah. Started a couple days ago. I sent out messages to some of my Israeli friends. A lot of them got back to me and said, Merry Christmas. That's kind of interesting coming from a Jew, but that shows the respect. I use it as an opportunity just to use the name of Messiah. But Hanukkah, some would say, well, Hanukkah's not in the Bible. Well, yeah, it is. Hanukkah is in the Bible because Jesus, we're told, in John went up to Jerusalem in the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication was Hanukkah. He was there and he went to Solomon's porch and he preached. He used it as an opportunity to preach the truth. So yeah, it's there. The events that are out of which Hanukkah arose are in the Bible as well. Daniel chapter 11, Daniel prophesies the exact events that would give rise to Hanukkah. And the Hanukkah story proves that Bible prophecy can be trusted word for word. Every little detail. I'm not going to go into that today. What happened in Hanukkah foreshadows what is coming for Israel under Antichrist. And there will be those under Antichrist who will be heroes, exploits, witnesses, street preachers who will do valiantly just as there were in the days of the Jews. You see, the Jews were under tyranny in about 168 B.C. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, a Seleucian king who was prophesied by Daniel, a vile person, a type of Antichrist. He took over the land and there were plenty of Jews that wanted to buddy up to this new king and they were, they were uh, content to go along with the tyranny and turn on their own people just like the left in our country today. Antiochus ordered the Jews to stop observing and doing what God commanded them to do. Stop circumcising your children. Stop bringing sacrifices to God at the temple. Stop serving your God and you're going to serve our gods. I demand that you offer sacrifices to our gods. And then Antiochus put up altars and idols. His people put up altars and idols around the land. Some of them Jews, many of them Jews. They sacrificed a blood a, a, a pig on the altar in the Jewish temple. It was the abomination of desolation. Not the ultimate one Jesus talked about, but one that happened to foreshadow that. And so to serve God and be obedient in those days often brought death. There were women in Jerusalem who determined, we are going to circumcise our male children like God commanded us to do, even if we die. And they did. The forces of Antiochus, Jews, were used by him against their own people, came into homes and took those circumcised infants and hung them in the streets by their necks, ravished, raped, and slaughtered the women and robbed their homes. That was the price. And yet there were those who continued to obey God. They would send people around the land to collect money, and to force them to bow down to these false gods. And they came to an area called Modin, where there was a man named Mattathias who had five sons, and said, look, you're a man of honor, you're kind of wealthy, the people will follow you. I want you to bow down to this idol and set an example. And if you will join us, we will reward you silver and gold. Now, the Jews coveted silver and gold for all time immemorial. That's a fact. That was a temptation. We will honor you, Mattathias. Just do what we said. He was vexed and said, you know what? 
He told his sons, we will not do this. We cannot profane the covenant of our God, even if we die. And they refused. And Mattathias, in his zeal, remembered Phinehas, the priest, in Numbers, when Israel went a-whoring at Baal Peor. What did Phinehas do? In his zealousness, he went after that wicked Jew and that Midianite woman who in the sight of all the people, right in front of Moses and the remnant, weeping and repenting of the sins, he took her into his tent. Phinehas took that javelin in there and put it right through both of them. And God gave him the priesthood because of that righteous act. In those moments, Mattathias remembered the story of Phinehas. And as that officer was demanding that they bow down, he rose up and slew him. And then he slew those who were trying to force the people and he and his sons fled into the woods. Thus was born the start of the great Maccabean revolt. Mattathias would die and he would tell his sons, do not back down. Show yourselves to be men in the face of this tyranny and stand against it. Do not do what they say. One of his sons, Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, would be a hero and the Maccabees would overthrow the rule of the tyrant. And the temple would be cleansed. And when they got all the mess out of the temple and cleansed it and they wanted to dedicate it, there was only enough pure olive oil left to light the menorah for one day. And God commanded that menorah to be lit perpetually. But they didn't have enough time to make enough olive oil to ensure that they had one jar, enough for a day. And they decided, we're going to go ahead and light it and we'll trust God to provide. And that olive oil burned for eight days. And that's where Hanukkah came from. But it was born out of people that refused to obey a tyrant and chose rather to fight and die for what God says than to give in. They were heroes. And it was about 160 years later that Joseph would be a hero in the same sense, refusing Doing what God says. Hebrews 11 talks about many of the characters we know from the Old Testament. But it also refers to men of faith who were valiant in fight and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. The writers of Hebrew is talking about the Maccabees. That's who he's talking about. That's exactly what they did. They were men of faith. They stood their ground, interposed under tyranny, and fought back. Not like the Jews who went to the ovens believing they were going to take a shower and just believing none of this is going to be true. On his deathbed, Mattathias exhorted his sons. He reminded them about Abraham, Joseph, Phinehas, Joshua, Caleb, David, Elijah, Daniel. The three Hebrew children, he, he reminded them that deliverance would come if they would stand. And these are the words. You can find these in the book of 1 Maccabees. 1 Maccabees is the, one of the apocryphal books. The Catholics mix these in with the Old Testament. They are not Scripture. They're not Scripture. The King James translators in the original 1611 stuck the apocrypha between the Testaments. Didn't mix it in like the Catholic Bibles that a lot of your modern translations are based after. Stuck it between the Testaments and they were very clear in their preface, this is not Scripture but we're putting it here so you can have an understanding of the historical events that took place between the Old and the New Testament. 400 years of silence from Malachi to Zacharias in the temple. It has historical value. 
And in that history, you see God's prophecies in Daniel fulfilled. So there was, hey, it's, it's like the maps at the end of our modern Bibles. That's why it's there. It's not scripture. We know that. But the book of 1 Maccabees is interesting because it is a historical account. In fact, my family and I are reading that now day by day during this uh, Christmas season in these days of tyranny. 2 Maccabees gets weird. It's not written by the same author, and it's got some weird stuff in it. A lot of false doctrine comes out of the Apocrypha. It's not God's Word. But 1 Maccabees is a historical account, and it tells the stories of those who wax valiant and fight. It tells, the stories, it tells a story that Joseph would have been aware of in his day and that Daniel prophesied. And this is what it says there as Mattathias is dying. This is what he tells his his sons, because he knew that the righteous are ultimately delivered. So he said this, Fear not the words of a sinful man, for his glory shall be as dung and worms. Today he shall be lifted up, and tomorrow he shall not be found, because he is returned into the dust, and his thought is come to nothing. Wherefore, you, my sons, be valiant, and show yourselves men in the behalf of God's word. For by it you shall retain glory. The sons of Mattathias would go down in history as valiant men who trusted in God's deliverance. And for that reason, the Jews celebrate Hanukkah today. Joseph would come along, like I said, 160 years later, and he would also show himself valiant. He didn't have to fight, but the fact that he went where God told him to go was an act of valiance in dangerous days. He showed himself a man. He didn't hide out and cower in days of tyranny. He trusted in God's deliverance and he lived as if he believed it. May the same be said for us. Because we look for a new heavens and a new earth. May it be said for us. Why? I think of an old song by the late Rich Mullins. Our deliverer is coming. Our deliverer is standing. Indulge me for a minute because I want to encourage you with tales from the sufferings of other believers. I talked to you about what happened in Cambodia a few weeks ago. The five years leading up to the fall of Phnom Penh and the invasion of the Khmer Rouge saw great revival and the increase of the Christian church in Cambodia. More than 30 churches, large revival meetings, Thousands of believers. And when the reign of terror that ended in 1979 ended, of the thousands of believers that were in Phnom Penh the day it fell to the Khmer Rouge, there were only a few hundred left still alive. And of all those pastors in Phnom Penh, at least 30 or more who were there when it fell to the Khmer Rouge, only three survived the reign of terror. I want to talk about theirs. There was one pastor named Rebina. And he escaped the Khmer Rouge somehow. They had a bounty on his head. He was marked for extermination, but he somehow was able to survive. His wife and his children were killed. Um, He was somehow able to cling to the Lord. And it was kind of a a miracle. He was in the northwest of Cambodia in the Cham 
that the Chomkar Lair district. And one day, kind of keeping low in the forest, he noticed that the Khmer Rouge cadres started acting funny, acting nervous. Time went by and he saw them start to leave. They just started leaving the area. They all started following a flow of the black clad troops out of the area. He didn't know what was going on. And then there was days of silence where these oppressors were just not there anymore. They knew something was happening. And then following those days of silence, more tr other troops came into town. It wasn't the Khmer Rouge, it was the Vietnamese. The Vietnamese who were our enemy in the Vietnam War. America has lots of blood on its hands for the Vietnam War. And I don't say that to disrespect our soldiers who were treated like animals by our generals and our government. But the same Vietnamese that were our enemy had invaded Cambodia and would prove to be the saviors of the Cambodian people. Rabina was standing in a field one day when he saw these North Vietnamese troops approach. It was late December uh, 1978. The Khmer Rouge started disappearing. There was a brief and eerie hiatus between the silent departure of the last Khmer Rouge and the noisy arrival of the Vietnamese. From his hiding place in the forest one afternoon, Rabina observed truckloads of uniformed troops driving up to the village. Abandoning his cover, he raced down to meet them and joined the excitement. A truckload of young Vietnamese soldiers pulled up. They were unloading sacks of rice for the people. One of them was waving a portable radio. Rabina, this surviving pastor, pleaded with the soldier to let him borrow it for just a few moments. Excitedly fiddling with the knobs, Rabina scanned the airwaves for something, anything, some news, a voice from the outside to let him know what was happening. Somewhere beyond the, the shadow of death. And then he heard it rising above the crackle and the static, the sound of voices singing. Silent night, holy night. All is calm, all is bright. Round young virgin, mother and child. Holy infant, so tender and mild. Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior is born. Rabina looked up through tears streaming down his face at the smiling young soldier. Christmas, he inquired. Is it really Christmas today? Yeah, yeah, Christmas, called back the Vietnamese soldier, seizing his radio and speeding off. A voice had come to him. From outside his sad and quarrelsome world, a clear and precious word had been spoken through the static and interference. It was the word of the eternal and creator God made flesh, suffering along with Rabina, full of grace and truth. It was Christmas in Cambodia. God delivers his people out of trouble. There was another one of those original pastors named Richea who survived up in the Krati province. And they watched the Khmer Rouge depart their area just like Rabina had seen. And it was cause for some of the villagers that knew this man and his family were Christians to come to Christ. And so immediately upon the departure of the Khmer Rouge from this province, people in, in the village where he was forced to live believed upon Christ. There was immediate salvation of souls because they recognized who this man was and what he believed and that it was true, that God had delivered him. 
And here's what happened. In January of 79, Christmas Day, 78, Rabina got the silent night. January 1979, this reached Yeah and his family and these new believers built a bamboo raft. And it took them 20 days to sail down the Mekong River back to Phnom Penh where they had been exiled, where he used to be a pastor. They constructed this raft. For 20 blissful days, they were carried effortlessly back down the currents of the mighty Mekong River and once more back to Phnom Penh, the city of their bitter exodus nearly four years earlier. The Vietnamese would not allow returnees to land at the waterfront or enter the city center for some months yet, so they passed on by and came ashore at the southeastern edge of the city in February 1979, near the site of the old Takmau Bible School. Here, Richie, his family, and these new believers built homes, caught fish, foraged for fruit, roots, and wild vegetables, and worshipped God with renewed and thankful hearts. On Christmas Day, 1979, a year after the radio message, they were celebrating with other returnees at the same site of the old Sarepta church. There was a third pastor, Siang Ang. He was an older man. He was a Cambodian. There, was a, there were Cambodians that lived in South Vietnam. And so the border kind of didn't necessarily divide Vietnamese from Cambodian people. And they had been, he had come to Phnom Penh to aid in the days of revival before the Khmer Rouge. And then they fled back to Vietnam when the Khmer Rouge invaded. And they, when the Khmer Rouge fell, he came back. He came back and Richier found him. They had been friends before the war, thought each other dead. They found each other. And this Song Yang planted a church of believers who had come back from South Vietnam in the shadow of the former Bible school where Ang himself had been baptized and discipled and where the nationwide church had met in conference just a couple of days before the city fell. A church was built on those ashes. Three pastors survived. Many perished. They were delivered of the Lord. Those that survived were delivered of the Lord. Amazing testimonies that God delivers the righteous. A lot of the Christian sites in Phnom Penh had been desecrated by the Khmer Rouge. There was nothing left. There was a young boy who, and a problem with these Christians who survived and came back is they had no Bibles. Their Bibles had been taken and destroyed. They had no Bibles. And so they had to worship the Lord as best they could. But there was a youth who survived. Um, he made his way back in 1979. He was a former Bible school student named Sokun. He was so despairing when he saw what had happened to the capital city of Phnom Penh, what had happened to the Bible school, what had happened to the churches. And he was wandering around aimlessly one day trying to find forage and trying to understand what had happened. All the familiar Christian places he loved had been taken over or boarded up. The Bible school at Takmau, stripped of all Christian symbols 
had been used by the Khmer Rouge as a hospital. Bethany Church had been gutted and surrounded by barbed wire. Bethel Church was a filthy warehouse. Bethlehem Church had been absorbed into the hideous death camp that was Tool Slang. I've been to Tool Slang. Horrible death camp. In many ways worse than Auschwitz or Bergen-Belsen or Sobibor. Finding himself wandering down Palong Avenue beside the Olympic Stadium. Remember they had a great big revival service at Olympic Stadium not long before the Khmer Rouge came in. So conspired or stumbled upon the old Christian Youth Center building where he used to come for Bible classes long ago. It was owned by OMF missionaries and Cambodian Christians lived there right up until the time the missionaries were forced to flee just prior to April 1975. After that, some of the Khmer Christians kept the program going and then they were driven out. The place appeared to be empty, so Sokun, out of nostalgia, said, I'm going to climb over the fence. He waded across the knee-deep grass of the front lawn and pushed open an unlocked side door. He expected to be greeted by the usual sight of, a mate of upturned furniture and ransacked rooms, but not here. To his utter amazement, underneath four years of accumulated dirt and cobwebs, nothing had been touched since the Christians had abandoned the place long ago. The house appeared somehow to have been passed by, a tiny enclave unsoiled by the filthy hands of the Khmer Rouge. How could this be? In his mind's eye, Sokin could see the faces and hear the voices of those who had once poured in and out of Bible classes here. He allowed himself to be transported back. Had it only been five years, it seemed a lifetime, another age, so far away now. And all those echoes, the merry laughter and banter of youthful voices, the ardent preachers, the classes of trainee evangelists, those who came daily eager for Bibles, Bibles, shaking himself from his reminiscence, he hurried across the room to a large floor-to-ceiling cupboard where stocks of Christian literature had been stored. Throwing open the doors, they were before him. This was no dream. He ran his hands over the cases of Cambodian Bibles left behind after our frantic bid to get as many of that literature out as we could before the communists came. In 1975, as we prepared to leave, this is the missionary who wrote the book that's writing, as we prepared to leave, we had despaired over these Bibles because we couldn't get them out. There was just too much literature to distribute. Sadly, some would have to be left behind to the fall, to fall into the hands of the Khmer Rouge. But now, to Sokun and the other Bibleless Christians who carried this precious cash away, it was clear that the Lord had kept His word safe. Right there under the noses of the Khmer Rouge, especially for these believers, the remnant of His people, when they returned to Phnom Penh, they had lost all their scriptures confiscated by the Khmer Rouge or lost in the chaos. God delivers the righteous. It says in Proverbs 11, 8, bear with me just a moment. The wicked cometh in his stead. God delivers the righteous and the wicked cometh in his stead. 
mostly to his destruction. The wicked cometh in the stead of what he has purposed for the righteous. So he falls into his own purpose destruction. But not always. Sometimes the stead the wicked find their way into is the deliverance of the righteous. How precious and amazing is the grace of God. We can't forget that either. We can't forget as we're surrounded by evil and tyrants, they will fall into the trap they are laying for us. But praise God, a few will find the deliverance we have found the same way we have found it. I want to read one more uh, little story here that demonstrates this because it involves the same exact building where the Bibles were, were protected. The same exact building where the Bibles protected were protected in Phnom Penh were also used, was also used in a weird way to bring a wicked Khmer Rouge soldier to Christ. Bear with me. These things are really encouraging in these days. Um, if I can find it. It seems that the house consecrated to God on Palong Avenue, the one where the Bibles were kept safe, was used by God at least one other remarkable way after we, this is the missionary, Don Cormack, who's talking, after we had to abandon it. It was in late 1979 when thousands of demoralized Khmer Rouge and the multitudes of dying wretches they had driven into the forest with them under Vietnamese shelling were spilling over into Thailand. They were fleeing to Thailand, the Khmer Rouge. I was helping, and, and were refugees. I was helping as an interpreter for two Christian paramedics among tens of thousands of diseased and malnourished refugees collapsed all over the forest floors along the Thai-Cambodian border. There's some things that happened to the Cambodians after the fall of the Khmer Rouge at the hands of the Thai government that are horrible, just as bad. And we here in America chose not to believe it or pay any attention to it. Very sad. Most of these refugees were dying of malnutrition, malnutrition, dysentery, and cerebral malaria. But amidst all the cries and pressures and with the scores of nameless victims being carried away each day to mass graves and an uncertain eternity, it was difficult for me to feel any sense of the sovereignty of God in their lives or even in mine. I, the missionary rights, was in despair. It was then that I scurried from one emergency to another that my attention was strangely drawn to a young Khmer Rouge soldier lying in the leaves close to death. Not that there was anything unusual about that, but from his wide questioning eyes, which seemed to follow me everywhere as I moved to and fro in front of him, I knew... I knew I had to stop and talk with him. There was nothing else I could do for him in his circumstances except hold his head and soothe his burning temples with a damp cloth. Bending close to his ear, I began to talk to him saying that I had some important good news to tell him. But as I uttered the Cambodian words for good news, it struck a chord of recognition within him and he struggled to tell me in a voice full of urgency of a time during the revolutionary civil war against the Lan Nol regime. Remember, before the Khmer Rouge came into Phnom Penh, they fought a civil war 
with uh, the puppet government that the U.S. had set up. And so there was a lot of fighting ahead of that. And it was during that time when the revival was happening in Phnom Penh that he had been wounded. And this soldier was laying under a tree. And he said a stranger from a nearby village had appeared and told him of the living creator and savior, Jesus Christ. Though he secretly tried to discover more of this good news, he never met anyone else that was able to help him. Then in April of 1975, following the fall of Phnom Penh and the forced exodus of all the people into the countryside, he found himself a member of the Khmer Rouge garrison guarding the empty capital city. On one of his regular patrols, he passed by a house which had an unusual dilapidated signboard fading in the sun, hanging on the front fence, containing the words in Cambodian, good news. Day by day, he passed by the empty house. It fascinated him, and he wondered, who had lived here? And what is this good news that I've been told about? He felt so close to finding the answer to his quest, but the house, like all the buildings in Phnom Penh, lay empty and silent. This is the same house where the Bibles had been hidden. Hardly able to restrain my excitement, I ask where in the city, this is the missionary talking to the dying soldier, where in the city was this house with the signboard? It was our Good News Center at 10 Palong Avenue. I realized in that moment it was that same building. We had once preached there, and I was able to tell him that I once lived there. And he listened intensely that the sovereign hand of God had been upon us both, bringing us together in this faraway, seemingly God-forsaken no-man's land, a place of war and death, and at such a moment was awesome beyond comprehension. I know he found peace with God that hot afternoon because the last audible word which passed his lips was Jesus. And then he slipped into a coma. The next morning when we arrived early at the camp, it was just in time to see the orderlies carry the stiff and lifeless body of this Kameru soldier away towards the mass burial pit. I went and sat down quietly for a few moments under the trees beside the place still marked by the crushed leaves where a brother whose name I never discovered had lived briefly and then without moving died in Christ. Though it was a grim and terrible place, surely I thought this is holy ground. For here the sovereign God had appeared to a seeker of the kingdom and taken him, just like Joseph, quickly home. And to me, God had given me reassurance that despite everything, he was still in control. Furthermore, it dawned on me at that moment that the Lord's everlasting arms could even reach and enfold the Khmer Rouge. And so they did over the many months and years which followed. God delivers his people. That ought to give us hope. And it ought to give us hope that there's hope for even the most wicked and vilest of men today. Maybe God will do for one of these left-wing psychos what he did for that young Khmer soldier. And we need to be ready for that. We need to be ready like that missionary was to take them in our arms and share with them the gospel at their dying breath because it's an eternal principle. Not a one-time thing during the Maccabees or during the uh, birth of Jesus, but an eternal principle.
God, the righteous is delivered out of trouble and the wicked cometh in his stead. I'm sorry I've run a little long. I wanted to read for you those stories. An amazing side note here is this missionary, when the, when, when the city, when the country fell, this white American missionary and his family did not go home. They fled to Thailand and they stayed in the refugee camps and did what they could do. And then when the country opened back up, they went back. And he was used of God. How different is that from missions today? Little virus with a 99.6 survival rate comes up and everybody goes home. Some of us had to. We, had, we couldn't go back to the country. The borders have been closed. But when we get home, we hide out and we don't go out and share the gospel. These things ought to convict us and they ought to encourage us. Don't forget Joseph was a hero in the Christmas story. Don't forget the story of the Maccabees. Don't forget these stories and let them compel us to be valiant, particularly the men in this church. We need to be valiant and we need to act like men and act as if we believe what we say. For we look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Guys, I wouldn't have gone after one, but we had some other things today. Let me just pray and we'll we'll eat. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for these testimonies, Lord. The testimony of Joseph who was faithful. And how that's a glorious picture, Lord Jesus, of what you're going to do for your bride. Lord, you're going to take us unto yourself. You're going to take us out of judgment and wrath. And you're going to take us to our eternal home. Lord, thank you for the examples we see fulfilled in the Maccabees. And Lord, in these unknown believers, these true heroes of the faith from Cambodia, didn't go to seminary, didn't pastor big mega churches, weren't popular with podcasts and on YouTube channels, relatively unknown but great heroes of the faith. Missionaries who didn't labor for man's glory but compelled by the same eternal promise that compelled Abraham. For we look for a city whose builder and maker is God. Help us to, inf- to follow these examples, to endure during days of, of, of tyranny, and, and to be ready for our deliverance, be it in death or be it in rapture. Bless the food we're about to eat in our fellowship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.